Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. My name is Lisa Lambert. I'll be the moderator for today's session. Before we get started, I just want to remind you of a couple of the basic rules. Uh, first of all, please turn to the people beside you and say, welcome. We're so glad to see you and tell them your name. <laughs> That's my new rule. I'm starting it. Uh, Second rule is please put $11 into the basket on the table. Um, If you would mind, please, silencing your phone just so it doesn't vibrate with all the excitement uh, going on in the world. Um, And uh, uh, I'm reminding you that we are being recorded um, both, uh, as you can tell, by uh, Shaw TV and also, if you can't tell, uh, by CKXU Radio uh, Live uh, at the University of Lethbridge. Um, So today's topic, a very timely and important one, um, called Indefinite Detention Without Charges in Canada. Really? Yes, really. Imagine spending years in prison without being charged with a crime or knowing exactly what you've been accused of. This presentation will be a sobering examination of the Canadian government's use of security certificates. Mohamed Harkat was arrested under a security certificate in 2002. He spent the next 43 months in jail, one full year of that in solitary confinement, before being released under strict house arrest uh, conditions in 2006. He was the uh, center of the second Supreme Court challenge against security certificates, which uh, the challenge was recently lost last year. He presently lives under strict restrictions in Ottawa with his wife, Sophie Harcott. Sophie is uh, joining us today, and I think uh, you're going to be very delighted with her. She is um, it has a, a uh, schooling in public and media. We were laughing that she ha- uh, does more PR for free than anyone she can imagine um, because she does all of this work for no pay. She's traveled extensively across our country and to the UK to talk about security certificates, and she's granted hundreds of interviews with reporters around the world uh, to discuss her husband's case. She's been a guest speaker at many universities and conferences, so we're very lucky to have her with us today. One of her most memorable events was when she spoke with Jack Layton at a large rally in front of 20,000 people in 2004. In that same year, she was awarded a Human Rights Award by CARICAN. So I'd like to ask Sophie to come up, please, and discuss indefinite detention. Good good afternoon, everyone. I'm really pleased to be here. Um, I'll, I'll try to speak very loud. Um, as you will tell from from uh, what I have to say, uh, I've been through hell the past 13 years, but no one prepared me for that flight from Calgary to Ledbridge yesterday. <laughs> Plus, when I saw that the pilot was half my age, and yes, I am still pretty young. Um, so I'm I'm really happy to be here today in front of a, a full room. I'm I'm really pleased to be here, and I'd like to thank the organizers. Um, 
As they were saying in the introduction, uh, my husband was arrested on December the 10th, 2002, which also happens to be International Human Rights Day under a security certificate. A lot of people ask me, why do you do this? Well, I'll tell you why. Because as you can see from, um, I think this, we can start the slideshow, I married a really hot-looking man. He's handsome. <laughs> not, only, not only do I believe in his innocence, but I also believe in the principle of justice. But the innocence there, it's not the important question. We need to remember that if you were in my husband's shoes and you were arrested and detained without charge, without access to the evidence... Would any Canadian accept that process? And I think if you ask any honest person, they would say no. The problem with the security certificate process is it's a law under the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act that only affects refugees and immigrants. It allows the government to arrest someone and call them a threat to national security and deport them to a, mostly to countries where they face torture or death. That's the big problem on the security certificate, is that you're basically kept in the dark. You have a large legal team of public counsels, but we do not have access to any of the evidence. So basically what you're giving is a report of allegations. Allegations like, we assume, we allege, we think that in the past, present, or future, this individual may have been involved in acts of terrorism or may be associated to a network. If there was nothing in the past to charge you with, there's nothing in the present. Who knows what will happen in the future? I hope some of you can make it out to the film festival tonight. Um, I've, I uh, worked on a documentary. I've worked on several documentaries, actually. One with uh, uh, Justin Trudeau's brother, Sasha, who's also a filmmaker, several years ago. And um, it will explain to you the law and what we've been through uh, for the past couple of years. So I really hope that you can make it out. But basically, the allegation report assumes, alleged, or thinks that you have done or will or may. That could be anyone at any time. For example, there is a lawyer that says, it's like you're being accused of murder, except you don't know who you killed, when you killed them, and how it happened. And you're asked to defend yourself. Like, for example, one of the allegations against my husband is that he may have been to Afghanistan. And when you're in a stand, what can you do other than deny? If you're asked, have you ever been to Afghanistan if you've never been there? The right answer is to deny. My husband will never admit to things he's never done or admit to knowing people he's never known. In a case like a security certificate, it's kind of difficult because if you don't testify, you're hiding something. And if you do testify, then you are, you're still a liar. It doesn't really matter. And a certificate is only ruled on reasonable grounds to believe that this person may be involved in acts of terrorism. It's the lowest standard of proof in any Canadian court. The Supreme Court, we, we appeared in front of the Supreme Court back in 2006. And in 2006, the Supreme Court ruled that certificates were unconstitutional that there wasn't enough evidence for the person to defend themselves. So they created, they gave the government one year to draft this new legislation. This government came up with the exact same legislation they have in the UK, which has been found unconstitutional, which is to create a special advocates. What special advocates are, are special security cleared lawyers that are chosen by government, that are given security clearance by government. And they're allowed to see 
whatever secret evidence the government chooses to give to them. But once they see that evidence, they cannot speak with the detainee or public counsel. We are in the exact same position as we are with just public counsels. So basically, in our case, it's really important to mention that the main informant, in our case, failed his lie detector test. He is the source to the majority, if not all, of the allegations against my husband. His credibility was never tested. And when the special advocates were put in place, we thought for sure we'd get access to the informant in secret proceedings where no one would see his face and no one would know his name. So what is the risk on national security if no one can see this person? The judge said no. And we found out probably because that individual is probably working on other cases that are related to national security. So we were greatly disappointed when our advocates were not given access to to the informant because his credibility was never tested, although he failed his lie detector test. And he is the, the link to the majority of the allegation. Second of all, in security certificate cases, all original material was destroyed. Interviews that were done with CSIS when those individuals came to Canada, so-called intercepts they claim they have, any notes, everything has been destroyed. So Shakawi took that to the Supreme Court in 2008, and basically the Supreme Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional to destroy evidence, original evidence, and ordered CSIS to keep the evidence uh, starting in 2008. So we have no original intercepts, no original interviews. We don't know which language they were from. And it's like giving an example of a telephone game. If we're 10 of us playing the telephone game and the, the word, it's probably not the same word at the end that it was at the beginning. Imagine if you're getting a transcript from a transcript from a transcript from a transcript done from people that don't even know or understand the language. If an intercept is done in Arabic and that's transcribed into English from from notes to notes to notes, how many errors there is. Just to give you an example, the government had exactly one year to draft a new legislation. At 4.55 p.m. on the Friday before the de- of the deadline, which was exactly one year, the exact one year day today, it was a Friday afternoon. We were prepared to go out on, a, on an outing. And... Um, my husband gets his new certificate, so the new report of allegation with his certificate. There's only five men. The cover letter was addressed to the wrong detainee. There's only five of them. Imagine the mistakes that are made in the back that you don't get to see and that you don't get to test. You know, all of these men, what they've said for the past 13, 14, because in Jabal and Majub's case, they've been detained longer than my husband. My husband, we're in our 13th year. All they want is a fair trial. We want the evidence to be out on the table, and we want to be able to defend themselves openly and fairly. Like Hassan uh, Amri says in the film, if I am a terrorist, and you give me the evidence, and I, I cannot defend myself properly, then put me in a jail and lock me up for life. But if you give me the evidence and I am able to defend myself and I clear my name, I just want a fair trial. You know, if it was in a criminal case, for example, and you destroy one piece of evidence, the case would no longer stand. Or if you want to use information that calls from an informant, the informant can be put on a stand and cross-examined. 
Also, the conservative government gave permission to the CBSC and CSIS about two, three years ago, allowed them to use evidence that comes from or derives from torture. I think we've learned from past experiences, like cases like Mayararar and Abdul al-Maki, that information is unreliable. They also raided our house on the eve of a hearing. And I will go through some of the conditions that I lived with for three and a half years. And they, it was like... Um, like, a, like a crime scene. They sent 13 CBSA officers to Ottawa police because the CBSA doesn't have the mandate to do searches. So they have to have uh, the Ottawa police present and three sniffing dogs, one for explosives, one for currency, and one for drugs. And I was in the shower when they came. So needless to say, I was naked. So they, my, they came in the house and they said to my husband, we're here to do a search. I said, a search of what? Our house is under so much surveillance. We're probably, other than Stephen Harper, the most watched residents in the country. And when I will go through the condition, you will understand why I'm saying this. And they were wearing blue booties and baggies, and they opened every box of Ritz cracker and book and eh, everything that was written in Arabic. They put in a box. They put cable. They put unidentified CDs, unidentified VHS. My address book was a piece of evidence for five hours. They had mirrors. They pulled cables. They went through every, every drawer. Even they went through my underwear drawer. We had this big argument. Who went through the underwear drawer, Mrs. Harkat? Was it a woman? Was it a man? Was it unconstitutional? It doesn't matter whether it was a man or a woman. The whole thing was found unconstitutional. The reason why they raided our house was on the eve of a hearing, a reasonableness hearing, so they could find so-called evidence. Evidence of what? Because this, what we found out was that the Canadian Border Service Agency, the CBSA, was going to lose their powers to do a search. And they needed to do at least once before they lost their powers. After my husband was arrested, he was put in jail for 43 months. What do you do with someone who's never been charged? Do you put them in a provincial detention center? Do you put them in a federal detention center? So they put them in provincial detention centers, but federal provincial detention centers are not equipped to deal with inmates that are in there for years and years and years. In the case of Hassan Amran, he spent seven years in isolation. Multiply that by three. So if you serve a sentence, you multiply that by three for something he's never been charged of. 43 months, first year in isolation. For the first couple of weeks... He only got one shower a week. He didn't get a toothbrush for the first 10 days. He didn't get a Quran for the first four months. He had nothing to read in his cell other than look at the four white walls. He was treated like the worst criminal on the planet. But I can tell you right now that inmates in the jail, though, they understood that a guy without charge doesn't belong in jail. My mentality of inmates has changed quite a bit. There's a lot of innocent people in there. And those inmates, they know the law. They know the law. They know what they did to, to go in there, and they know how things work. For example, my husband didn't have a razor for months. And when we were set to go to court, my husband says, I don't want to go to court. I look like bin Laden. And I said, well, bin Laden's kind of cute. He's got nice eyes. But that's not what really upset me. He said, my mustache drags over my lip, and when I eat, it goes into my food. And that really, really upset me. 
So I stood in that glass box because for those of you, I, I bet you the majority of you have never been into a jail. You go in front of general population with about 10 to 12 inmates and you go in front of a maximum security. And in isolation, it's a glass box and you're shackled from the wrist to the waist to the waist to the ankles. And you're watched by lots of guards in your glass box. And you're like talking like this on a phone, a phone that doesn't work. In a provincial detention center, you have no human contact whatsoever. For three and a half years, I had two visits of 20 minutes with my husband. So I stood in that glass box and I said, I am not leaving until I'm guaranteed that he gets a razor. And I was told several times, your time is up. You're not going to get more visits. And I stood my grounds. But my husband, I could see the fear in his eyes because what I said on the outside, he paid the price for on the inside. Well, he got that woman's razor, big razor. Took him five hours to shave that beard. The next visit, he had toilet paper all over his face. But he did get a shave. After that, it's like, what do you do with those inmates? They're in there for years. So they build their own facility. We called it the Guantanamo North of Canada. Same concept as Guantanamo, Cuba. It's two portable units that they just welded together that was put on the grounds of the biggest jail in Canada, the Kingston Penitentiary. It was surrounded by three sets of barbed wire. It was divided in six cells. Portable units that cost $3.5 million to build. And that jail ran empty for years after Mr. Majub was released on bail. Empty at $2.2 million a year cost. After the first Supreme Court challenge, my husband, just before the Supreme Court challenge, my husband got released on bail. And we thought, wow, finally, he gets released on bail. Wonderful news. We were willing to do anything to get him out on bail. But what we didn't know were how we were going to live through the conditions. Mr. Majubes himself decide to go back to jail because the conditions were so severe on his family that he decided himself to go back to jail and the judge says we've never done that put someone back in jail because someone wants to go back in jail after seven eight years of detention my husband several times he offered to go back it was out of the question but let me tell you boy did it cross my mind a few times Imagine being separate for three and a half years. You speak behind glass. You visit your husband. And from one day to the next, you're stuck together 24-7. Yes, you heard me, couples who've been married for a long time. 24-7. Because I am become his main surety. The court rule me as his main surety. I have to watch him in the house 24-7. Everything about him got on my nerves. Where he put his shampoo bottle, now he wanted my side of the bed, now he wanted to eat this for breakfast. And for three and a half years, he was told what to do and how to do it. Going to Tim Horton for the first time to pick a donut took forever. <laughs> because you're so institutionalized. You know, you're used to the being told what to do and how to do it. So these are some of the conditions that my husband had to live with for many years. So the minute you get out of jail, what they do is put a GPS on your, uh, on your ankle. I'm not sure if you've seen some of the pictures, but a GPS is quite chunky. It's a big piece that never comes off. People think you can just take that thing off when you shower and you swim. No, that thing never comes off. And I've slept with a guy who wore a GPS for seven and a half years. And let me tell you, when he turns in bed, that thing whacks you on the ankle. You want to die. It hurts. For seven and a half years, my husband, he didn't wear shorts. And that's okay with me, because as long as he's hot up here, he's got the ugliest legs. 
So I was okay with that. But just to say, like at 40 degree weather, he never wore a pair of shorts. That's something that people don't think of. We had two surveillance cameras in our home at each entrance. And those cameras are on 24 seven. So I was his main surety. My mom was his second one. My mom has a full-time job. She has her own music business. She, I would do 95% of the surveillance. That means you're with him 24 hours, seven days a week. And there was a priest in our community that was in his, his mid-80s that would be the only person who could cover. But every time I put him in charge, I would always be a little bit worried that he would forget some of the conditions. We were allowed to go out three times a week for a maximum of 12 hours. Every outing had to be pre-approved in advance. Every location, every person we spoke to had to be pre-approved. We had to pre-approve the route that we were going to use. Between 48 to 96 hours in advance, every outing we went to, we were followed by CBSA officers, Canadian Border Service Agency, between 2 to 4 to 6 to 8, between 1 to 4 cars, depending on the outing. And for those of you who've never come across a CBSA border agent, those people wear bulletproof vests and they carry weapons. And they look like police officers. My niece, who was six years old when my husband first came out of jail, we told her, you will be the first outing that we get to do with you when Uncle Mo gets released. And by the way, my niece didn't speak a word of English when my husband got arrested. So she would visit him occasionally, and he would do collect calls. And the only word that she knew how to say was, good. So he would say, how are you doing today? Good. How's school doing? Good. So we took her to the mall to pick out an outfit and to go to the restaurant with her. And she asked me, are they going to follow us the whole time? I said, they will. They have to. But they're so good, you're never going to know they're there. About half an hour into the outing, my niece stood in the middle of the mall, and she says, I know exactly where they are. So I said, okay, well, you go ahead and tell me, because Aunt Sophie, she cannot point at them, because it puts their security at risk. Because my security, is, it's not important. It's their security at risk. And by the way, when those people were following us, I had no more personal space. I complained about how close they were, about a feet behind me with their walkie-talkies, turning on the left, turning on the right, ordering chicken. For years, for three and a half years, I heard that walkie-talkie everywhere I went. I complained about, about the distance they were at. And they said, Mrs. Harkat, you no longer have a personal space. They decided that for me. So she's in the middle of the mall, and I said, okay, so you go ahead and you, and you point at them. Because Aunt Sophie's going to get in big trouble if she points at them. She says, this guy right there. I said, why him? Because I went to a kid's shoe store and a kid's clothing store and a kid's toy store, and he doesn't have any kid, and he's always there. And this guy right there, and I said, why him? Because his jacket match. A six-year-old could figure it out. Our calls were monitored. Our mail was intercepted. Our Christmas cards were opened. Our Val pack packages were opened and labeled. Our flyers, our McGinty MP flyers were labeled and opened. I was not allowed to have a wireless device in my house. I was have a computer which was under lock and key and a pad key, which I had to do. So my husband never saw the internet or never used a computer for 12 years. Just last summer, he got access to his first computer. He's now allowed to use a home computer only, which is being monitored. He had never seen the Internet. He had never seen his website. He had never received an email. And let me tell you, he loves the email. He loves Internet. And he's way better at it than I am now. But these are things that you take for granted, you know. We had a curfew within the, within, in our own backyard. Nine o'clock was our curfew in the backyard. For example, we barbecue. It's barbecue season. We, I step out, he steps out. Oh, forgot the salt. I step in, he steps in. 
And we have surveillance cameras to watch us. And we have CBSA officers parked in front of our house for hours. And when we go out, they know what we purchased. They open our mail. They see what's on our credit card. They listen to our telephone conversations. For many years, they recorded that over uh, three and a half years, I was recorded saying over 300-something times, I will talk to you in person. Because there's no way I was going to talk about personal issues on the telephone when I knew CBSA and CSIS recorded our telephone conversation. They were also another violation of the charter on Constitutional is that they listened to solicitor-client calls for years. And we know that's the most sacred privilege there is between as an inmate and their counsel. So basically, judge said to, see, to the government, bad, bad boy. And they did it again. They did it twice. I'll give you an example of what it was like to go out on an outing when you have only four hours. And, for example, what do you do when you need to go to the public washroom? What do you do? So, ladies, it's nasty in those men's washroom. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> I've had to sneak into men's washroom. I've tried to sneak him in women's washroom more often because in some places it was just not pretty and I wouldn't do it. But we had this technique going where, okay, you go, okay, okay, I put my back to the door and I watch everything. One time, one time only in the shopping center that was pre-approved and we were watched by four CBSA officers. My husband said, I really have to go. The washroom was full. Every stall was taken. So I said to my husband, I cannot go in. So what I'll do is I'll put my foot in the door here and I'll, I'll look at your feet underneath the door. So he went in. Right away, the CBSA all went in. Two weeks later, we get a letter from the government saying they want to put my husband back in jail because he violated his conditions. He was left alone in that public washroom. Because in that specific time, he could have met Bin Laden in that specific stall, at specific time, in that specific mall. What do you do in a change room? You have to bring him in. Gynecology appointments. What do I do when I have a doctor appointment? I can't leave him alone at home. My mom works all day, so I have to get my doctor pre-approved and bring him at my gynecology appointment. And he sits in the corner to pretend and read a big medical magazine. And my husband speaks very poor English. He used to call himself a presumed tourist when we first met. You know, when, we, when he was in jail, he said, oh, this, he didn't even know what discrimination was. He had failed an English test just before that at the Algonquin College. And after that, he understood exactly what security certificates were. He, he knew the meaning of the word discrimination. For example, we went to a movie. Uh, ten years ago, there was a, very a couple of years ago, there was a very popular movie called Good Cop, Bad Cop. Well, the good CBSA officer sat in front of us and the bad one sat behind. And the one in front, he really enjoyed the movie. <laughs> then you go to Costco and there's all these little samples on weekends. Well, they have a full lunch by the time they're out of there. They do the groceries at the same time we do our groceries. And let's not forget, every location is pre-approved. I forgot to mention that every person that enters our residence has to be pre-approved, have a criminal background check, provide a photo ID, including my nephew who was born after my husband was released. My nephew only knows Uncle Mo as Uncle Mo. He doesn't know nothing about the allegation. He knows him as Mononc Mo. His name is Momo. Even the GPS we managed to hide from him for so many years. The GPS had to be plugged two hours a day. So he sat next to an electrical outlet for two hours a day to recharge his GPS. So our nephew comes over for a sleepover, and he comes in our room, and he says, what's that? So my husband says, well, you know how uh, people, they like to wear their watch on their wrists? Well, I like to wear mine around my ankle. 
He says, whoa, that's a really big watch, Uncle Mo. But my 80-year-old grandmother had to get pre-approved, and some of my friends didn't get through because some of the activists, they have small criminal records for trespassing or trying to protest for rights and democracy, and there's some kind of list out there. We went to see another movie. It was called God Almighty. And because of the religious title to it, they decided to send four officers that day. It was a comedy about Steve Carell building in, uh, Noah's Ark. It was a terrible, <laughs> terrible movie. I wanted to die. It was so bad. It was so bad. I prefer foreign movies or good Quebec movies with subtitles, but my husband doesn't read enough, fast enough to do those movies. So we have to always def- pick something light and, or one of those American movies I really don't like. But just to tell you, I was really suffering. So my husband says, well, since we have another location, let's go to the other pre-approved location. I said, no way. They're sitting through that movie, the whole movie. (laughs) They're staying right here. I'm not going nowhere. For for, for Christmas, for example, they gave us an eight-hour pre-approved outing. So we would go to my sister, and we would have our meal there. We wouldn't go anywhere else. And CBSA would sit in a running car for eight hours watching us. When I'm there and my mother's there and everything has been pre-approved, the location, the people has had criminal background check and everything, they would follow us everywhere. They would take notes of everything. They would follow us on our daily exercise. They would have their faces like that in windows when we were in small stores. I have one anecdote because I know I'm reaching towards the 30 minutes. They were even at present at my grandfather's funeral. But just to give you an idea, for years and years and years I was followed. I'm a Kenyan citizen. It's a security certificate that affects refugee and immigrants. Wrong. It affects everyone that knows or loves or is friends or supports my husband. Because when we were out on an outing, for example, and we're grocery shopping, and this seven-year-old lady recognizes my husband from the media, the first thing she wants to come to do is give him a hug. But he's doing his grocery like that, and she is not pre-approved. She slid her hand over my, my husband's wrist, uh, uh, waist like that. She says, I'm so happy to see you out. Because no one has ever come up to us in public and say, go back to where you come from. People want him to get a fair trial because everybody wants to see that evidence. So anyways, for years I heard that sound, that walkie-talkie. I was at the point when I was my breaking point. So one night we're in a shopper's drug market, and there's 15 minutes left to the outing. There is a robbery in the shop at Jagmar, so we get in lockdown, and the police surrounds the building. So I said to my husband, I panicked a little bit. I said, I'll get myself. We'll get ourselves out of it. I'll go over, explain the situation. I take my receipt, my ID. I tell the officer, I said, do you mind if I leave my information? If there's anything, I need to get out of here. Nobody wants my husband. Only the CSIS wants my husband. So he's got no criminal record anywhere. None. He doesn't have a record. The RCMP doesn't want him. The Ottawa police doesn't want him. My husband passed the security clearance with the Ottawa police for a job. And most of the time, the the OPP and the RCMP will come up to us and say, you know we're not okay with what CSIS is doing. We would never arrest someone without charge. Anyways, I have my own opinion about that. But we get that all the time. So just as I'm about to get myself out of the situation, the CBSA officers manage to get through the, the doors and again to the shopper's drug mart. So they come in with their bulletproof vest and all that, and I, I'm at the point where I'm swearing like a sailor. I'm yelling, I'm a Canadian citizen! You know, trying to make a point here. I'm a Canadian citizen. Why am I being followed by those people? And the OPP looking at me panic, and they don't know who those people are. So they take out their badge, 
And they say, Sophie, it's an exceptional circumstance. I'll put that in my report. I said, last time you told me it was an exceptional circumstance with that washroom incident, and you wanted to put him back in jail. Or that we went on a yellow light, and you said he violated his condition, peace, and good behavior. Listen, I'll solve my own problems. So they're looking at each other. Calm down, calm down. I said, no, no, no. So they take out their badge, and they show the uh, younger officer like that. And the younger officer looks at his superior, and he said, they say, we're the Canadian Border Service Agency. And the officer looks at his superior. The superior looks at, no, I don't know that badge. We're the CBSA. The officer looks at his superior. The superior looks at the officer. He said, what are people at the border? We're at the border, the Canadian-American borders. They said, oh, they didn't even recognize their badge. So what the heck are you doing in a shopper's yard mark? <laughs> For three and a half years, I had to deal with that. Needless to say that I got us home. But I'll just talk about quickly. I have what, how much? Oh, okay. I'll wrap it up. It's important to mention that these men... The basic of a certificate is to deport someone. And these men face deportation to torture or death to countries like Syria, Algeria, Egypt. They face great risk if returned in their country. And unfortunately, last May, the Supreme Court ruled that the, the newer version with the special advocates was now not perfect, not ideal, but constitutional, and left us in a limbo. They didn't give us any remedies. So we've actually reached... The, the maximum of what it is in legal, in legal decisions. So now my husband faces deportation to Algeria. This will be a big battle for us now because he's at great risk of return. Also, we also, after 10 years of legal support, we lost our financial support. So now that battle is at our cost because I got myself a part-time job that puts us over to $23,000 a year maximum limit. We now make 25000 a year. So now we have to pay that legal deportation on our own. And it's going to be a long and painful deportation because can Canada deport someone that faces torture or death? No, Canada signed. We signed several, several bills that said we will not deport someone to torture. But the Supreme Court said you can in exceptional circumstance. Will the government use that, that excuse or will the government rely on diplomatic assurances that we will have to see and that could be a very long battle for us. So that we hope that you will pay attention to what will be going on because the Jabala decision will be coming out in the following in the next coming weeks. And Mr. Majoub's case, he lost his reasonableness decision also um, shortly after the Supreme Court because remember, it's based on reasonable grounds to believe. It's not based on actual facts. It's only based on reasonable grounds to believe. could be an association. It could be a hearsay. It could be based on anything. For example, today we're all in the same room. We're all now connected. And Bill C-51 will all be seen as promoting terrorism. Will you be seen as promoting terrorism by attending or speaking out on this? So we are setting serious, dangerous precedent with Bill C-51. And I hope that you don't stay silent to injustice. Because it might not affect you personally, but eventually will affect someone that you know or that you love or people that you care for. But it will happen. So don't stay silent to injustice. Thank you.